Hello and welcome to the Science of Everything podcast. I'm your host, James Fodor. In this podcast, I discuss a wide variety of topics in both the natural and social sciences, exploring the many fascinating insights that the scientific method yields about the world around us. Now, the topic for the first episode this week is explaining gravity. Uh, So in this episode, I want to look at first the historical background about different uh, theories of gravity uh, before moving on to explaining Newton's theory of gravity. Um, And then we'll look at how orbits work, um, the topic about gravity in space and on the moon, etc. And finally, we'll have a bit of a look at the tides. So let's dive into it. Now, theories about gravity basically go back to the times of the ancient Greeks. Um, According to ancient Greek theory, particularly proposed by Aristotle, they didn't really have a concept of gravity like we do today as a force. They believed that all um, all objects in the universe or on Earth were, were made up of four different elements and that um, different elements had different natural uh, tendencies to go in different directions. So, for example, fire had a natural tendency to go upwards, seek the heavens, so to speak. Um, and so if an object had lots of fire in it, it would tend to go upwards. Whereas if an object had lots of um, Earth in it, it would tend to sink downwards. Um, and the ancient Greeks also believed that the circle was sort of a perfect form, a perfect shape. And so circular motion at a constant speed was sort of seen to be uh, perfection, sort of the, um, the universal and natural um, form of motion. And so it was believed that all the planets uh, had a circular orbit around the Earth. Um, and that idea of a, a geocentric universe was um, put forth by Aristotle, and uh, later on it was sort of codified and um, consolidated in the Ptolemaic model. Um, yeah, Ptolemy lived in, I think, the 2nd century AD, and or it might have been the 1st century, and he, um, he adopted basically an Aristotelian uh, worldview of gravity and the orbits, except that... Uh, more accurate observations of the planets had showed that there was a phenomenon called re- a phenomenon called retrograde motion. Basically, that means that normally the planets move around in a certain direction, which we now know is caused by the um, well, the rotation of the Earth and also the movement of the planets around the Sun. But um, it, it had been observed even in the time of Ptolemy that sometimes the planets sort of move backwards across the sky. Um, and this couldn't be explained by the Aristotelian um, worldview of perfectly circular orbits. So Ptolemy adopted the idea of um, that basically each planet, and also the Sun, orbited around the Earth on a perfect circle, but then um, it sort of, on that circle, it also, the planet orbited around a, um, a smaller circle called epicycles. So basically, you can think of a point called a deferent, which orbited around the Earth um, on a big circle, and then um, around that deferent, around that point, orbits the planet um, in a smaller circle. So it's kind of like a moon orbiting a planet orbiting the sun, except in this case it was just a planet orbiting nothing, orbiting the Earth, uh, if you can think of it like that. And by adjusting the adjusting the speeds and um, timing and size of all of these deferents and epicycles... Um, Ptolemy was able to construct, uh, to, to get his theory to match exactly with the observations of the planets. And so that theory of um, the Ptolemaic model of um, uh, circular orbits with Earth in the center and epicycles and deference uh, remained essentially the, um, the main theory that was held in the West right up until the 16th century. 
Now, in the early 16th century, an uh, individual by the name of Nicholas Copernicus proposed what he thought was a simpler model of planetary motion, where he had all of the planets orbiting around the Sun. And retrograde motion was, in this, um, in this instance, explained by the relative order of the planets. So basically, in his model, um, planets that are further out from the Sun, which would be Mars, uh, Jupiter, and Saturn... Um, would be overtaken by the Earth as it orbits the Sun. So you can think of um, sort of Mars just uh, slowly orbiting the Sun further out, and Earth uh, coming in from behind and overtaking Mars, and then um, uh, moving past it on a, on a smaller circle. So um, if you sort of work that out, it's, it's, it turns out that Mars, from Earth's perspective, appears to move backwards um, in its orbit around in its orbit uh, in its motion across the sky for a short period of time. Um, so, so the Copernican model could explain retrograde motion. Um, however, the problem with the Copernican model was that it still assumed perfectly circular orbits, and so there were still discrepancies in the uh, observational data that couldn't quite be explained properly, and so C Copernicus still had to rely on epicycles and deference and, and those things. Um, so it wasn't a complete break with the old uh, Ptolemaic model. Now, if we fast forward to the 17th century, um, oh, well, first, actually, in the late um, in the late 16th century, there was a I think he was Danish um, astronomer called Tycho Brahe. He conducted he basically spent his life um, drawing together a large body of extremely accurate. Um, astronomical observations about the planets and their orbits around the Earth and so on. Um, and then based on all this data, his um, protégé uh, by the name of Kepler um, constructed uh, what are now known as the Three Laws of Planetary Motion. Now, Kepler was able to... He, he constructed these laws based upon the, as I said, the extremely accurate observations made by Tycho Bray, but he constructed the laws so that they were m mathematical in nature. Um, which was a, a very unique achievement, um, being able to construct uh, very sort of s simple mathematical laws based on these uh, this vast body of experimental evidence that he that he had there. I, I should also point out that Tycho Brahe did not have access to a telescope, so he made all his uh, he, he he lived before the telescope was invented, so he made all his observations with. Um, well, I don't exactly know how he did it. Very uh, precisely aligned um, observatories and other things like that. It's quite impressive. Anyway, Kepler's three laws of planetary motion are his. So his first law was that um, planets do not orbit the sun in circular motion, in in circular orbits, but in ellipses, with the sun at one foci. Now, an ellipse is a sort of. It sort of looks like a circle, except it's elongated in one direction. Um, so it's kind of hard to explain without a picture, but if you just Google um, ellipse, and you'll you'll see what I mean. So an ellipse has two foci, um, sort of sort of central points around which the um, the ellipse is focused. The so Kepler's first law was that the planet orbits in an ellipse with the sun at one foci. Now, this this idea of an ellipse finally allowed Kepler to explain the various discrepancies in the uh, orbits of the planets that had plagued um, astr astronomy for thousands of years since the Greek times. Um, so, so this idea of ellipses plus the uh, order of the planets um, going out from the sun, so the heliocentric model plus ellipses, 
um, finally enabled all of the problems in the orbits of the planets to be solved, and therefore there was no longer any need for epicycles or deference, and so those were gotten rid of. And that's a, actually a very powerful reason for why the Copernican model and Kepler's laws and so on were accepted, because they were so much simpler. They did away with the need for these complex epicycles. <laughs> okay, uh, so Kepler's second law uh, was that the planets always orbit the Sun such that they sweep out equal areas of their orbit... Um, in equal times. So if you think about what that means, if a, if a planet is closer to the Sun, so if a planet's in an ellipse, it means that it's in different parts of its orbit, it's at different distances away from the Sun. You know, it's a, when it's at the, at the further end of the ellipse, it's further away than if it's at the closer end of the ellipse. And once again, you can look up a diagram online if you're having trouble visualizing this. Um, so Kepler's second law basically says that if the planet's at the point at its orbit which, where it's closer to the Sun, it, the the, um, the sort of radial distance between it and the sun is less, and so in order to uh, sweep out uh, a certain area, it has to travel faster. When it's further away from the sun, the distance between it and the sun, the planet and the sun, is greater, so it doesn't have to travel as fast around the circumference of the ellipse in order to uh, sweep out the same area. So basically, uh, Kepler's second law says that when a planet is closer to the sun, it moves faster. When it's further away, it moves slower. And Kepler's third law is is stating a similar thing, just in more mathematical terms. Um, I won't go that, through that now because it's it's basically just a mathematical relationship between the semi-major axis and the uh, and the period of the orbit. So once again, the basic idea is that the further away a planet is, the longer it, the slower it goes around the, the sun um, or whatever it's orbiting, and um, the closer in, the, the faster it is. So we see this in the, in the planets. So Mercury has an orbit of, I think, 88 days it takes to go around the Sun, whereas uh, Neptune takes many, many decades to go around the Sun once. Okay, now, those are Kepler's laws. So now we move on to Newton. I'm sure you've all heard of Newton before. Um, he did some very important work on optics, but uh, probably he's most famous for his uh, laws of motion and his universal law of gravitation. Now, what... Newton's real, uh, his biggest insight, his most important contribution was the fact that he realized he was really the first to come, or the first significant person at least, to come up with the idea that the same forces or the same processes that caused an apple to fall off a tree or any object to move on the earth, to, move, to fall down on the earth, um, are the same ones that kept the planets moving about the sun. Because before this, people really had no idea why the planets uh, moved about the sun or about the earth or whatever they thought they orbited around. They just sort of did. Um, Newton um, connected the idea of you know apples falling from a tree with planets rotating around uh, the sun. And in doing so, he formulated, obviously, his universal law of gravitation. Um... And in doing so, he, he developed his laws of motion and his universal law of gravitation, and then he plugged in all the numbers, and he was able to derive all of Kepler's laws uh, just, just from the things that Newton found. So that was a very strong proof that, um, that Newton's laws were accurate. Of course, another big proof was the fact that he was able to predict... Uh, they were able to use Newton's and Kepler's laws to accurately predict eclipses, um, which was a pretty big thing. Okay, so what is the universal law of gravitation? Basically, it's that uh, the force between any two objects, the force of gravity between any two objects, um, is determined by the mass of both of those objects and the distance between those objects. 
and there's also a constant in there which is the gravitational constant that just d defines how strong the gravitational force is um, now it should be pointed out that the gravitation that contrary to sort of everyday experience might tell us the gravitational force is actually very weak um, just think about this when you um, let's take the example of a magnet when you put a magnet on the fridge the um, electromagnetic force of that magnet between the magnet and the fridge if you like is greater than the entire gravitational force that the earth the entire earth exerts upon that magnet and when you think about how big the earth is compared to the size of the, the magnet and the fridge you can see how much stronger the electromagnetic force is compared to the gravitational force and the uh, the nuclear forces that act on an atomic scale are even stronger again relative to, to the size um, but I'll talk about those in probably later podcasts um, the reason that it seems like gravity is so important is because unlike the other three fundamental forces uh, electromagnetism and the nuclear forces gravity doesn't have there's no such thing as far as we know as negative uh, gravity or, or negative mass so gravity is always attractive um, so if you can think of, for example, if you have positive and negative charges, they can cancel each other out, and the whole object can be neutral. So there's, so on a macroscopic scale, there's, you know, no, no electromagnetic forces between most objects. Um, but gravity never cancels out, so it always builds up. It's always cumulative. So that's why on a, on the scale of say planets in a solar system, gravity rules the day. Okay. So as I said, the, the gravitational force between two objects is dependent upon the mass of those two objects and the distance between them. And now the, the gravitational force diminishes by the uh, square of the distance between the objects. And basically the, the, reason, the intuition behind that is, is, um, is sort of that you've got... You can think of the gravitational force as diminishing in proportion to the surface area of a, a sphere... And that, and the surface area of the sphere, obviously being two dimensions, length times width, um, it's a squared term. So if you double the length, the area, the surface area of the sphere um, goes up, or if anything, goes up by um, the power of two. Um, once again, this is kind of hard to explain without a diagram, but if you think about two objects that are say ten meters away, you can sort of draw a um, a line between them and draw a, a sphere. Um, with a center point at one of those objects. And then let's say we move the object uh, object 2 further, uh, twice as far away from this initial object. Um, and so the radius of this sphere doubles. Uh, when we double that radius, the surface area of sort of an equal portion of the um, of that, of that, the surface area of a specific portion of uh, that, of the surface of that sphere will... Um, even though the radius is only doubled, the surface area will increase by four times. So that's why, that's how you get the uh, inverse square law of gravity. Um, hopefully that made s some deal of sense to you. It's very hard to describe that without a diagram. Okay, now another interesting thing about gravity, and something that Newton's law clearly showed, is that all objects inside a gravitational field of a given strength accelerate at the same speed or at the same at the same rate yeah, they accelerate at the same rate sorry acceleration and speed are two different concepts so I shouldn't, shouldn't use that word um, now this seems counterintuitive to a lot of people for example if you ask if you ask someone a classic question for example if I drop an egg and a rock of the same size 
off of uh, the top of a, a building, which will hit the ground first. And natural inclination is to think that the rock will hit, f- hit the ground first, because it's heavier, and that's what, uh, that's what Aristotle thought. But in fact, they both hit the ground at the same time ignoring the effect of air resistance, of course. This is the reason we actually get confused, is because air resistance usually comes into play. That's why feathers and other things like that take so long to fall. It's not because the um, force of gravity is uh, accelerates them to a lesser extent than it accelerates anything else. It's just because if you look at a feather or a leaf or anything like that, the surface area is massive relative to its mass. And the greater the surface area, the more air resistance acts against it. So the greater the surface area of an object relative to its mass, the more air resistance it will have, and therefore the slower it will fall. Uh, But that's not due to any difference in the force of gravity. So on Earth, every object will accelerate downwards at a rate of about 9.8 metres per second, uh, second, um, regardless of the mass of the object. Now, the, the reason for this is because, um, the, basically, the mass uh, cancels out. The mass of the object the, that's falling cancels out. Um, so remember we said that the, ma- the, the force between two objects is proportional to the mass of those two objects, so you would think that if you had a more massive object, then it would fall faster. And that, that is true. There is a larger force that, acts on this, that will act on the larger object, the more massive object. However... Exactly counteracting that is the fact that the more massive object has more inertia because it's more massive, and so it requires a larger force to bring it to the same acceleration. So those two factors, the extra the extra force acting on it and the extra um, inertia that it has, they're both dependent upon the mass of the object. So they both exactly cancel each other out, and so that's why the rate of acceleration is totally independent of the mass of the object the object that's that's accelerating, not the object that's generating the, the force. Um, I'll talk about that a little bit later. So, this is... Um, this this fact that the two... Uh, that the mass exactly cancels itself out is, is quite interesting, and is actually one of the factors that led Einstein to develop his gener- general theory of relativity. But that is definitely a topic for another podcast. Okay, so now I want to move on to look at orbits. Now, what, what does it mean when an object orbits another? I'm sure everyone listening to this podcast has heard about the moon orbiting the Earth, the, planet, the Earth orbiting the sun, satellites orbiting the Earth. But what does that actually mean? Well, basically, the basic idea of an orbit is that an object... Uh, when an object is in orbit around another, let's, let's talk about a satellite orbiting the Earth. So when the satellite's orbiting the Earth, it basically means that the satellite is perpetually falling to the Earth. It's forever falling down to the Earth. Um, you might think, well, why doesn't it hit the Earth? The reason that it, doesn't, that it never hits the Earth is because it has sufficient uh, velocity perpendicular to, um, its, to, the direction in which it's, to, to the direction in which the force of gravity is pulling on it, um, so that it always manages to escape falling down. Now this is uh, to Earth. Now this is another one of those concepts that's really hard to explain without a diagram. Uh, so l- let me try another tack. Suppose that I was to shoot a. Let's talk about a rocket. Um, suppose that we were to shoot a rocket um, up into the air. Um, now generally, if we did that, what would happen is that. Uh, well, let's say we don't shoot it straight up in the air. We shoot it at somewhat of an angle, just to make this example a bit easier. 
now normally what would happen, it would just go up and then it would uh, sort of arc over and fall back down to the ground again. But let's suppose we shoot it faster and faster and faster. And as we shoot it up faster, it gets to a higher altitude before um, it exhausts uh, sort of all its velocity and its uh, gravity pulls it back down again. Now you can imagine that if we shot this rocket fast enough, it would actually be able to, you know, escape the Earth's atmosphere, move out of the Earth's atmosphere. And if we shot it faster still, it would um, take a big arc, uh, arc curve through space um, until it came back and hit the Earth. And we can extend this um, this line of reasoning further um, until we get to a level where, until we get to a speed where it, the rocket shoots is shooting so fast that it actually never falls back and hits and hits ground and hits the ground again. It's, it perpetually goes around the Earth. The basic reason, uh, sorry, I should say that the velocity uh, that enables this to happen is called the escape velocity. And in, or, in order to get anything, um, in order to get satellites or anything into orbit, we have to accelerate them to the escape velocity of the Earth. And the escape velocity is rather high, and so that's why you need massive rockets to get into orbit. And that's why it's so expensive. Um, now, the basic idea that this this might seem a little counterintuitive. How can you just sort of uh, never fall down? Well, think about it like this. Um, uh, according to Newton's laws, an object always tends to go in the same direction, um, at travel in the same direction at the same velocity, unless uh, an unbalanced force acts upon it. So suppose you have the Earth just sitting there, and we have a rocket that's traveling, or a satellite, we'll call it a satellite that's traveling um, perpendicular, that's traveling sort of perpendicular to the Earth. So you've got the Earth sitting there, and, and the satellite coming along, um, coming along and sort of moving past the Earth, not towards it, but perpendicular past the Earth. Um, now, in order for the satellite to move in a circle around the Earth, there needs to be a force uh, continually pulling the satellite towards the Earth. Because a, uh, an orbit is a circular motion, and remember, objects do not naturally move in circular or in circular motions, they naturally move in straight lines. Now, that force uh, pulling inwards, pulling, uh, uh, pulling the satellite inwards, will be provided by the force of gravity acting upon the satellite. That's, you know, why things fall down. That's because the force of gravity is acting upon them. So you can think about the satellite moving perpendicular in a perpendicular motion past the Earth, but it's, it, it slowly curves sideways a bit towards the Earth because it's being pulled by the gravity of the Earth. However, it still has all of that initial forward velocity uh, perpendicular to the Earth. So it doesn't just... Uh, careen directly to the Earth, it still has that initial forward velocity, and we know from the law of inertia that it's it's not going to lose that, just because we have an extra force acting on it. So it's still moving forwards, it's just also curving uh, curving slightly towards the Earth. Now, uh, and this is important, because the reason that objects are able to never fall down and hit the Earth is because the surface of the Earth itself also curves. Um, remember, the Earth is more or less a sphere. So if the rate at which you're being pulled towards the Earth, the rate at which the satellite is curving towards the Earth, is is sort of the same rate at which the Earth itself is curving, then the satellite never moves relative to the surface of the Earth. So the way you can think about it is that the satellite is falling to the Earth, it, it slowly moves towards the Earth, but the Earth is falling away from the satellite, or curving away from the satellite via the curvature of the surface of the Earth, at the same rate. And so the satellite never hits the Earth. 
Okay, hopefully that explanation made some deal of sense to you. Once again, it may be beneficial to look up a diagram uh, to understand that. Okay, so I already talked about escape velocity. Um, so I'll just talk briefly about satellites in orbit. Now, you may have noticed that I've been talking a lot about uh, sort of velocity perpendicular to the Earth. Um, and that, that's important because in order to have, fr from my description of uh, what an orbit is, uh, you may have been able to determine that what's crucial is the speed, uh, is the perpendicular speed relative, or velocity relative to the Earth. So in order to orbit the Earth, the, um, the Moon or the satellite or whatever it is has to be going at a sufficiently fast speed. Otherwise, what will happen is that um, it will be pulled to the Earth, but it won't have moved far enough in the perpendicular direction when I say perpendicular, by the way, I'm referring to if you think of the f the line uh, at which the f along which the force of gravity acts between object between the satellite and the Earth. Um, perpendicular refers to um, uh, the direction perpendicular to that to the line of that force. Um, yeah. Anyway, so um, yes, if you if you're moving if you have perpendicular velocity relative to to this force of gravity, but the velocity is not not enough. Um, the curve you will fall to the Earth faster than the Earth curves away from you, and so you eventually what will happen is you'll spiral inwards and you and you crash into the Earth or whatever you're orbiting. So this is um, so to get satellites in orbit, we need to give them. We we're not we not only have to get them out of the Earth's gravity well, we have to move them you know out up out of the atmosphere. We also have to give them a lot of perpendicular velocity. Um, and we also have to periodically um, give them boosts from their engines as well, because even when they're really high up, there's still a little bit of atmosphere left there, which means there's still a little bit of drag acting on them. So gradually their perpendicular velocity, their velocity perpendicular to the Earth, gradually diminishes as a result of that frictional force. And so if left alone, they'll, they'll spiral into the Earth. Um, and that's that's called decaying orbit. Uh, you may have heard of that. That's why satellites um, generally won't stay forever in, in their orbits because they're too close to be in a stable orbit unless uh, unless they get periodic boosting um, uh, in their rockets to, to keep them up. Okay, so now I want to move on to the topic of gravity in space. Now I've kind of already covered this. It's often said, but it's often said that when uh, astronauts, are, say, in Earth's orbit or in the space station or whatever, that there is no gravity, uh, and that's not exactly true. It's it's accurate to say that they don't feel gravity, or they don't feel the force of the Earth's gravity. Now, why is that? Well. It's interesting to note that the reason we feel gravity while we're on Earth is not because of the force of gravity itself. It's because of things that are resisting the force of gravity. So, for example, um, I feel the gravity of the Earth acting upon me not because of the actual force of the Earth's gravity on me, but because of the force of the chair or the ground uh, pushing back against that gravity. That's what I actually feel. Um, another example, if you jump off a building, um, you... The force of gravity is acting upon you all the time as you fall down. Um, as you fall down, but you don't feel any. You don't feel anything until splat, you hit the ground. Um, so it's only when you make contact with something else that resists your motion um, that you feel the force of gravity. So astronauts in the space station are falling towards the Earth in in an orbit. Now, as we've seen, they're they're in perpetual free fall. 
Um, this is what the states call it. It's in free fall. They're perpetually falling to Earth, but never hitting the Earth because the Earth's curving away from them as they fall. Uh, but the space station or spaceship that they're in is also falling to the Earth at exactly the same rate. Um, remember that the uh, force of gravity doesn't depend upon the mass of the object in question. So the space station, the astronauts, and everything else in the space station are all falling to Earth at the same um, at the same acceleration. Um, so nothing uh, nothing is acting against the astronauts to make them be able to feel the force of gravity, and so that's why they don't feel gravity. Now on the moon. There, unlike in Earth orbit, there is gravity on the moon. This is a common myth that there's no gravity on the moon. Uh, the moon is a massive object, and so obviously it generates gravity. Now, the moon is not as large as the Earth, so it doesn't generate as much gravity. The, the force of gravity is less. In fact, if you go onto the moon, the, the acceleration due to the force of gravity will be about one-sixth as strong as it is on the surface of the Earth. On Mars, it'll be about a third as strong. Um, now, this fact is important because often you'll see, maybe in a science fiction movie or something, um, people from Earth going onto other planets and walking around just just as if they were just as if they were somewhere on Earth. Now, that's inaccurate for many reasons, but for one thing, it's unless the mass of the planet they were on was pretty much exactly the same as the Earth, um, the f- the force of gravity would be dramatically different, either much more or much less, depending on how large the planet was, and so. You know, either they'd be they'd be leaping above the trees or crawling around the, the ground on their bellies, essentially. And this is this is the um, and this is most extreme if you ever see um, if you ever see like on some episodes of Star Trek, for example, the astronauts land on, or in some movies, they land on a- they land on asteroids to mo- do some mining or whatever, um, and they walk around. Um, generally they'll show them walking around with a little bit of a spring in their step but if you're on an asteroid asteroids are very very small compared to the earth they would the force of gravity yeah there'd be some gravity there but it'd be so insignificantly small compared to the earth that you'd probably be able to put yourself in orbit just by taking an ordinary step Um, so there would be very very little gravity on an asteroid uh, unless it was made of some extremely dense material okay so finally uh, we're going to look at the tides now the tides just refer, obviously, to the changing uh, height of the water, particularly the ocean, um, at, at different times of the um, at different times of the day and of the month, and so on. Now, this is caused by you. You may have heard that the tides are caused by the moon, um, and that's basically correct. A tidal force just refers to, or tidal forces, as a general concept, refers to a, the difference in forces between two different parts of an object, and and this is and it's so it's tidal forces that are responsible for the tides on earth now how does this work well th- you think of the moon sort of sitting there on the right hand side of the earth um, now remember the force of gravity diminishes with the with the square of the distance or the inverse square of the distance between the two objects that means that the side of the earth closer to the moon um, will be acted upon by a larger force than the side of the earth farther away from the moon the effect of this is to sort of stretch the Earth out a little bit. Um, now, that that effect acts upon the land and the sea, but because the land is, well, it's made of... Um, it's mostly solid, the, you don't see the effect as much. Uh, water being... Well, sorry, the oceans being made of water, the sort of stretching effect is more noticeable. So basically, the ocean bulges um, r- uh, relative to the land. And 
that is what causes the tides. Now, the reason we have two tides every day is because the Earth is rotating. So you think about it, now, think about the Earth and the Moon, and picture the Moon orbiting the Earth. Now, sort of tip that up on its, um, on its end so that you're, if, if, if you weren't already picturing it this way, so you've got the, so you're looking at a circle, the Moon's moving around the circle, and the Earth is at the center of the circle. Now, think about the Earth as more or less a, a circle or a sphere, but think of the oceans, the water on Earth, as sort of a, um, or an ellipse, or a bit of a stretched uh, circle, which is sitting on top of the, the circle of land, which is the Earth. Now, you'll notice that the, if you sort of can picture this in your mind, if not look it up on Google, you'll see that the oceans, uh, the water sort of sticks out at two ends of the Earth, so it um, protrudes from the land at two ends of the Earth, uh, but at two other ends, at the two other sides, um, the Earth sticks out relative to, to the sea. And that corresponds to the high and the low tides. Where the water is higher, you get a high tide. Where the water is lower, you get a low tide. And because the Earth is rotating sort of within that uh, elongated body of water, um, you get the two tides per day. The Sun also plays a role in creating tides because of tidal forces of the Sun acting on Earth, but the, force, the, the size of that is only about one-third of the total effect. So if we didn't have the moon, the, the, tidal, uh, the tides on Earth would be much smaller. Um, it should also be noted that the size of the tides and the, the particular timing of them and so on, it's very complicated. It's more complicated than just where the moon is. It's also affected by the shape of the ocean floor and the uh, outline of the continents and all, and all those sorts of things. Uh, one last thing I want to talk about is the Roche limit, which is a bit more of an advanced concept, but I think it's quite interesting. Um, Basically, you can think about the tidal forces, as I said before, as being the difference in, in, in the forces that act um, acting upon different parts of an object. Um, so, as you move closer to a massive object, say, for example, a planet, the force of gravity acting upon that object increases. And so, also, the difference in the force of gravity between, say, the near and the far part of that object also increases. Now, if those if the difference in those forces, or those tidal forces, um, increase to a high enough level, they'll actually rip the object apart. Um, now, the Roche limit refers to the distance uh, from a massive object in, inside of which tidal forces exceed the gravitational attraction between any two objects, and so no object that is held together solely by gravity can survive within, inside the Roche limit. And this is why gas giants, notably Saturn, have rings. Um, ordinarily, all of that dust and rocks and stuff that comprises Saturn's moons would collect together and form... Uh, sorry, that, that comprises Saturn's rings. Uh, that would collect together and form a moon, or several moons. But because uh, this stuff is inside the Roche limit, it's uh, the tidal forces acting upon uh, that would act upon a moon at that distance from Saturn would be too great and it would be ripped apart. So that's why Saturn has rings. Now, you might think, well, how come we can put satellites in orbit then? Um, and we can have this, the space station there, which is really, really close to the Earth. The reason for that is because the space station and, and, and uh, shuttles and, any, and other things like that, probes, they're not held together by gravitational forces. They're held together by uh, the electromagnetic forces acting between the, the chemical elements and atoms that make up these objects. And so it is... So the tidal forces are not great enough to, uh, to rip them apart. However, if you, go, if you went to a sufficiently dense object, like a neutron star, for example, and maybe I'll talk about those in another podcast, but they're really, really dense objects, or, or really close to a black hole, 
the tidal forces would become so great that it would they would exceed even the electromagnetic forces keeping the, your spaceship together and your spaceship and in fact your body would literally be ripped apart uh, so on that happy note that ends this episode on explaining gravity hopefully you uh, learnt a bit um, from listening to this podcast uh, now you may have noticed that I didn't really say anything about general relativity or the curvature of space time um, and I believe that this is best left for a separate podcast because it's a hard topic to understand and to explain so for, uh, in this in this episode we just looked at gravity from a Newtonian perspective if you enjoyed these, this podcast uh, please help to spread the word by posting a positive review on, I, on iTunes uh, or by sharing the podcast with a friend if you have any questions, comments, or suggestions about the podcast, please feel free to contact me. Um, you can reach me at my email, fods12 at gmail.com. That's F-O-D-S-1-2, numeral 1, numeral 2, at gmail.com. You can also find the show notes for this podcast and leave comments at fods12.podbean.com. Uh, thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you next time. <laughs>